remember the scale. You know, you've been to Southeast Asia before, maybe you've been to Cambodia, you've been to Laos, even even Thailand. You feel like you've kind of covered the place in a trip. You cannot do that with Indonesia. Uh, I mean, this is a place on a, on a scale on a scale similar to to the whole of the whole of not not just the US, the whole of North America. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk about the country of Indonesia and why it's such an amazing place to travel. You know, exactly one year ago this time, I went there for the first time, specifically to the island of Sumatra. I spent one month there, and I feel like I only scratched the surface of one island in a country consisting of thousands of islands, many of them huge and diverse. It made me want to explore the place in a more in-depth way, in part because I haven't even been to the most famous islands of Indonesia, places like Bali and Java and Borneo. So this week for the podcast, I had a chat with journalist and scholar Tim Hannigan, who's written several books about the country, including A Brief History of Indonesia, which I read while I was there last year, and more recently, a quirky guidebook called A Geek in Indonesia. Together, we cover a lot of ground in making sense of this giant Southeast Asian island country. We start by talking about the political and literary history of Indonesia, but at the heart of our conversation is an attempt to sketch out a basic toolkit for where to go and how to approach the country as a traveler. We talk about the most intriguing islands to visit, some of which you might not be all that familiar with. We talk about visas and safety and how to get around. We talk about why it's important to go slow when you visit Indonesia and why you can't just swoop in and see the whole country in one visit. I talked with Tim Hannigan by Skype from his home in Cornwall, England in late 2019, but I'm timing the debut of this episode with my arrival in Sumatra one year ago. Indonesia is a big place, so if any of the places we talk about capture your imagination, you might want to get a map and cross-reference things. You know, when I first visited Indonesia last year, I flew out of Los Angeles and Hong Kong into the city of Medan on Sumatra. I designed my flight itinerary using Airtrex, which sponsors this podcast. That same itinerary later took me to Sri Lanka and Dubai and the Republic of Georgia, among other places, and maybe I'll do podcast on those places someday as well. Airtrex has specialized in round-the-world and multi-stop itineraries for almost 30 years now, and they don't really have a competitor when it comes to designing vagabonding-style flight itineraries. Check out their trip planning tools and plug in your dream destinations at Airtrex.com. But for now, please listen in as Tim Hannigan and I talk about why Indonesia is such an amazing country and what to keep in mind for planning a journey there. Recently went to Indonesia for the first time, and it was on my list 20 years ago, but I just got so into Thailand and, and Laos and Myanmar that I didn't get to Indonesia. And then in 2019, I went to Indonesia and just Sumatra. But of course, when I say just Sumatra, that's, you know, Sumatra is the size of California. And I, I only went to part of Sumatra. I spent a month there. And, and later I was talking to a friend and she said, oh, Aceh, did you go to Aceh? And it's like, well, no, I didn't. Um, so so really this this entire episode is just an extension of my excitement about having discovered just how amazingly diverse Indonesia is. And, you know, from, from Papua to, to Sumatra, it's like 3,700 miles. And I think as, as you wrote, or somebody wrote it, it's like from London to Tehran. That's like from New York to Lima, Peru. And so it's this giant country. And I'm excited about going back there. I haven't even been to Bali, which is where everybody goes. Uh, so, Let's talk. Let's talk about Indonesia. 
Well, absolutely, that's great. Well, it's it's a it's my favourite topic, my specialist subject. Um, but but I do have a I do have a question for you before we go any further. You've you've kind of explained that you got hooked on other places, but but can you work out a bit further why it was it took you so long to get there? Well, it was. It, this is strange because I knew about, for example, Lake Toba was on my what is now called a bucket list. We didn't have that word in 1999. I was so excited about going to Lake Toba, but I just got basically I underestimated how how slow travel works. And so in 1999, this is before I had written Vagabonding, before I had sort of philosophically expounded slow travel, I didn't realize that Thailand. And, and Laos and Vietnam and Cambodia would take me six months. And even then I missed most of those countries. And so basically I ran out of time. I had plans to go on the Trans-Siberian train from Beijing to Moscow in June of 1999. And I just, I just ran out of time to go to Indonesia. And even when I got back to Thailand and I was riding vagabonding in Thailand, I wanted to get off, you know, it's so cheap to fly there. I wanted to get off and do it, but I, I just never did. And it's, it's one of those things where, once you go to a place, then the penny drops. And it's like, oh, my God, why haven't I come here before? But that was me. For whatever reason, I found it easy to postpone Indonesia because I loved other parts of Southeast Asia so much. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's a pretty common scenario. I think a lot of people who are very well traveled in the region. I mean, they may have been to Bali or they may have done a little kind of a little short trip to Sumatra or Java, but but very often they haven't at all. And they, they'll have spent huge amount of time in in laos cambodia vietnam thailand uh, myanmar wherever else and 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 it kind of gets overlooked it gets forgotten i think the only place that that suffers even more so from that is possibly the philippines um i think the philippines is is although you know it's another part of southeast asia it it, it even even less commonly fits onto people's kind of standard circuits around the the, the region. I mean, I've never been to the Philippines. I've, I've spent a lot of time in in the rest of Southeast Asia. I've been to every other country in Southeast Asia multiple occasions in most cases, but somehow I've never been to the Philippines. I sort of forget it's there. So I think the Philippines is one step beyond. But but Indonesia certainly suffers from that. People just people kind of uh, they they overlook it. There's there are these sort of standard entry points to the region, aren't there? And 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 Bangkok tends to be the big one. Um, but even when people arrive into Kuala Lumpur or Singapore, there seems to be a tendency to to go the other way. The route is obvious, I think, or it certainly used to be. I mean, yeah, I, I started traveling in the region more or less the same kind of time that you did, and and then it was it was much more overland. There wasn't so much hopping around by cheap flights and and the the circuit was very obvious it was it was a circuit that went up through mainland southeast asia and looped back and started and ended in bangkok usually well that's something i want to get back to when we talk about sumatra because based on my 1999 research i was expecting a tons of backpackers in sumatra well now in 2019 they can just fly to bali right they don't have to do that overland circuit uh island hopping that used to characterize travel there before but touching on what you were just talking about you know the philippines and indonesia which are thalassocracies? Is that right? I think this is a, a, a word I learned from your book. That's not my word. That's a great word. I'd never heard that one before. What a wonderful word! <laughs> yeah, a, th a, th a thalassocracy is is basically a, a, an island kingdom where the the the. Uh, the the power is separated by water, but somehow united by shipping. It's it's a great word. I I, I thought I learned it from you, but maybe not. No, no, that's completely new to me. Well, that's 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 given me something to take home from this. Anyway, Rob, thank you. Okay. Anyhow, these these thalassocracy 
uh, countries, and I'm sorry, listeners, if I'm quoting that wrong, but it has something to do with these far-flung island uh, nations. Um, in a way, Indonesia, and I learned this having gone there this year, is sort of its own continent. And Sumatra is so big, but it's so far from, from Borneo, Kalimantan, or from Papua, or from the more famous areas of, of Java and Bali, that, that you're right, that it's easy, it's almost overwhelming. And so in a sense, again, this is me 20 years ago, there was so much else going on in other parts of Southeast Asia that I just put it off for 20 years. So I'm, I'm curious how you discovered Indonesia. Um, it's it's very simple in a funny way, and it and it all hitches on on where I come from, which is Cornwall, uh, in the far southwest of the UK. Which uh, and this might sound slightly absurd, kind of combines the status of California and Hawaii in a US perspective. It's the it's the beach place, it's the surfing place, and it's a place that's on a bit of a limb from everywhere else. It's a kind of old old hippie hangout and whatever. So I was I was a surfer like everyone else I grew up with. Um, and all of my all of my slightly older peers, um, had, while I was still finishing school, had started traveling. And the place they traveled to was almost always Indonesia, because in the kind of mid late 90s, it was it was a very cheap place to get waves. So they would work all summer on on farms and restaurant kitchens, building sites. And then they would go in the winter. And at that time, you know, they, it was it was incredibly cheap. You could you could save on minimum wage or, or even less. And so long as you could basically afford a, a flight out there, then you could live on more or less nothing in Bali for a couple of months. So it was always on the radar. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd scarcely been abroad, really, in my in my teens. The first time I went abroad was to Spain when I was 16. Um, but but by that stage, I knew that I was going to go to Indonesia at some point. I was actually a little bit late getting there because I got distracted by by South Asia, the Indian subcontinent, and ended up ended up in my late teens uh, and early 20s, spending a lot of time in India and Pakistan. Uh, so it took me a couple of years to get to Indonesia, by which time a lot of my friends I'd grown up with had been four or five times surfing. So it was 2002. It was just after the Bali bomb. So late 2002, in the height of the wet season. And I went with uh, with a friend who traveled there before. He'd been there a couple of years before. So we went to go surfing. Um, but it was the height of the wet season. The tourist industry had completely collapsed. I mean, it was in a bad way anyway, post the late 90s economic crisis. And then the Bali bomb had wiped it out even in Bali. So there was no one around. And we traveled from Bali east through the, the islands that, that run east from Bali. Uh, and surfing was our main motivation, but we traveled around on land and it just was, it was the 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 stuff going on on land that really caught my attention. Um, and uh, then I just found I just kept going back and back and 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 got so interested that I, I needed to have needed to have a way to spend more time there and Im embed myself more deeply. So I after three, three backpacking visits, I went to live there to initially to teach English and then I moved on to doing journalism work. And how long did you how long were you based in Indonesia? I was based there. Uh, it was a bit kind of broken up because I would I would come home and, and have three or four months back in the UK and in amongst it. But I was mainly there between. So I was there for a year, full time year teaching 2006, 2007. And then after that, I was mainly there up until about 2012. And then I've been been mainly based in the UK and Ireland since then, but uh, but still regularly visiting. I was last there uh, about three months ago. And and you ended up writing. You've written several books that touch on Indonesia. One is a history of Indonesia, and I've 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 heard you say in interviews before that 
in a way, there there aren't that many popular histories of Indonesia. Do you know why? Um, it, I think I think one of the one of the reasons is it, it is kind of off the radar for the English speaking world in a way that China or India, which are the other two similarly vast. Asian countries are not. I mean, India is familiar partly because of its colonial history, partly because it speaks English itself. So people from the UK, people from the States can can talk to India directly, if you like. China dominates our imagination just because of its scale and its, its contemporary importance in the world. Uh, but Indonesia is just sort of not there in our, in our imaginations. Um, you don't particularly often meet or until relatively recently, you didn't particularly often meet Indonesians outside of Indonesia. Um, and there just isn't a, isn't a historical body of, of literature about it, accessible literature about it in English. Uh, you would have a different perspective if you were from Holland. That was the, the former colonial power. So it has a different role in their imagination. But but for the rest of the rest of uh, of Europe and, and North America, it just just doesn't have a status, which makes it very difficult uh, to 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 pitch and sell books about Indonesia to, to publishers. So my first my first published book was about uh, Northwest Indian subcontinent, what's now northern Pakistan and, and, and Kashmir. And that one was was snapped up by a publisher in the UK. The next one I wrote was about a, a sort of historical narrative history, but it was about Indonesia in the 19th century. And no UK publisher wanted to know because their sort of mindset was, well, where's Indonesia? Is that some some tiny little island country in the Pacific, somewhere near Fiji or something like that? So I think I think that's the reason. Um, there'd really only been two, two kind of uh, popular narrative histories uh, about Indonesia before I wrote them uh, and one was was Simon Winchester's Krakatoa, which is an amazing book. Mm. But it hitched it hitched around it hitched around a, a, a geographical or geological event, the volcano. I mean, it, it, it's it's a fabulous book and it teaches you a lot about 19th century Indonesia. But but Indonesia was kind of incidental to it. And then the other one was Giles Milton's Nathaniel's Nutmeg, which is very much a kind of colonial story about about white people beating each other up in the 17th century. So uh, so again, in, Indonesia was kind of incidental, the backdrop to the story of the spice race. So the the, the reason. The reason that there aren't many books about it is because there aren't many books about it. It's trapped in this this cycle of of being underwritten, which I think happens to a lot of countries. Well, it's interesting that you point out, like, sort of the the Dutch Dutch have a colonial history there, and so perhaps more interest. Uh, and actually, this is a total aside, but I think Eddie Van Halen has a an Indonesian mother, you know. So, so even it, it even I did not know that that's isn't that brilliant how about that yeah yeah so so like the dutch side of his family uh, has has an asian an asian component as well this is just that's a random thing that's like that represents 30 percent of what i knew about indonesia when i was 14 right so um <laughs> that's, that's that's two great things i've taken away already from this this conversation rob thank you right you're well you're welcome you know i'm thinking of other things in the popular imagination about uh, Indonesia. As a travel writer, I know that Marco Polo and Ibn Battuta write about Indonesia. I know that in science, there's the famous Wallace line um, that that contributed to ideas of, of evolution. What are the other big things that the instinctual things that someone from the UK or the US might know about Indonesia? There's things that that are there that you might not automatically connect with Indonesia, but the 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 most important one historically is this is where spice came from this is what what originally set up 
the the, the colonial interactions between Europe and Asia, um, cloves and nutmeg, uh, which which were in their day more expensive than gold, came only from Indonesia, not just only from Indonesia. They came very specifically from Maluku, which is in the kind of northeast of Indonesia. And more than that, um, nutmeg came only from one tiny, tiny archipelago, the Banda Islands, which are just these minute, minute little islands. It was the only place in the world that nutmeg came from. But since antiquity, since sort of Roman times, nutmeg was somehow finding its way from there to Europe changing hands many times along the way and getting more and more valuable. So by the time it got to Europe, it was a tremendous, tremendous value. So uh, so spice, you know, pepper, pepper was also found in India, but but in greatest volume in Indonesia. But cloves and nutmeg came only from Indonesia. So that was that was the original impetus for the Spanish and Portuguese and then the Dutch and the English and the French to, to, to go to Asia. So that's its its great sort of uh great uh, contribution to the world really in terms of in terms of uh, history uh one of those little tiny banda islands was was swapped for manhattan in a sort of in a treaty with uh, between the between the dutch and the british at a time when neither of these small islands was of great deal of significance so uh so had- and the reason the reason Manhattan ended up ended up under British hands uh, was because it was traded for a tiny Indonesian island. I, I had no idea. And actually, another thing I had no idea about in, until I read your history of Indonesia is that um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like basically Sumatran people settled in Madagascar and then the Madagascarian people invaded East Africa like a thousand years ago. And there was this giant battle with a thousand ships where basically the African people had banded to, you know, defend themselves against these Malagasy people who had come from Sumatra many years before. And so there's this giant Disney style, I don't know if Disney or Brookhammer style battle in East Africa that we never hear about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, the, that whole that whole uh, sort of journey across across the Indian Ocean is is just mind boggling. Um, and and yeah, uh, the Malagasy language is is pretty closely related to, to even to modern Indonesian. It's part of the Austronesian language family, which is a big, big group and takes in all of the Pacific languages as well. But it's but it's 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 pretty, pretty closely related. So it was about 1500 years ago they made this crossing. And um, and uh, it's just sort of inexplicable what compelled them, what compelled a, a group of people to to set out from the coast of Sumatra and head right the way across and 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 settle and settle this this other island off the coast of Africa. And then, yeah, and then have these kind of political political roles in the history of that region, which again we hear we hear very little about. And, and I think the reason that popped into my head is you were talking about the spice trade, and I believe the source of that war was the China. I'm not sure if it was a spice trade, but it was basically they were trying to control trade with China. And this was a thousand years ago that basically, you know, Indonesian Malagasy people were fighting with East African people to control the China trade, which feels like a very globalized war that happened a thousand years ago. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, the the the, Indonesia, the the Indian Ocean and the sort of South China Sea. Uh, and the the Western Pacific are, are, are a globalized place and have been a globalized place for a very long time. I mean, the, the, there were there were links and connections and trade routes throughout that region back into back into well, what's prehistory to us. As I was saying, nutmeg from the far northeast of Indonesia was available at a very high price in Europe two thousand years ago. So that gives you some indication of of, of how interconnected everything was. Yeah, globalization is not a not a twenty first or twentieth or even nineteenth century thing. It's uh, 
it's it's a very old thing and and that's really a, a kind of crucible of it that that Indian Ocean and South China Sea periphery is a real is a real kind of wellspring of globalization and th- and this sets up actually one final history question before we get into the the nuts and bolts of visiting some of these places in Indonesia and that's that it feels like there's this big Chinese influence and this big Indian influence on Indonesia in part because of location you know that it's it's sort of this this seaport nation in between these two great Asian cultures. So um, real briefly, what what is the influence of China and India on Indonesia? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's a great question. It, and as you, you say, it, it sits between the two in trade. And those have really been the two kind of cultural cultural powers, if you like, that have influenced Indonesia over, over a period of about 2,000 years. Um, uh, and, and, and both in different ways, really. Culturally, you could say that India was the more obvious source. I mean, the, the region was all Hindu Buddhist till comparatively recently, um, and that kind of informed um, culture, uh, literature, and building styles, and so on. But then, politically, if you like, a lot of the influence came from 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 China. China was the big dominant power to which tribute was sent, or to which the rising Indonesian powers strained against. And then, of course, you've always always had large numbers of Chinese people settling in Indonesia over over hundreds and hundreds of years. So and things like the fact that they eat noodles um, uh, comes from China. So it's both of them, in a way, have, have kind of drifted in and then and then mixed with with local indigenous Austronesian culture to create what 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 Indonesia is today, which is this glorious kind of hybrid yeah, it feels like there's there's no better example of a of a hybrid culture than Indonesia. And just so our listeners have a sense for how Indonesia works, again, it, it really is spread quite far uh, across the face of the earth. So let's sort of create a mental map uh, for people of of like what Indonesia is like east to west, north to south. So we have Sumatra, which is the place I know the best, in the very very west, which is sort of a California size island. And then as we go east, how, how can we sort of orient ourselves, keeping in mind that most of us know Bali and maybe Java and then everything else is a little bit more of a mystery? How can we make a map for folks? Okay, the, the best way to think about it is start with with Sumatra, as you have done, and then think of a, think of a long curving line that, that runs down in a sort of arc and it's it's running running eastwards, but but also downwards. So it crosses the equator and then levels out beneath the equator and carries on eastwards and runs all the way out towards the top of Australia. And that's basically the, the southern and western periphery of Indonesia. And it's it's a, a, a volcanic zone. It's the, the point in which the, the Indian Ocean plate runs into the, the Sunda plate. So it's it's formed by, by plate tectonics. And all those islands are basically basically lumps of volcanoes stuck together. So it runs down Sumatra, this huge one, crosses the equator, levels out, and then you get Java, and then you go beyond Java, going east now on a kind of horizontal, and it's Bali, and then there's a string of small islands called Nusa Tenggara that run all the way out towards the top of Australia, and then beyond that, you've got Papua New Guinea, uh, the western half of which belongs to Indonesia. And then above that arc, there's a jumble of of other islands. So you've got Borneo, the bottom two thirds of which belongs to Indonesia. Then you've got Sulawesi, which is this kind of demented spider with four long legs. And then you've got you've got Maluku filling the space between that and the top of of, of Papua New Guinea, West Papua. Um, 
So it's basically that very clean southern and western arc running all the way from Sumatra to, to the border of Papua New Guinea. And then above that, these two bigger islands, Borneo and Sulawesi, and all the little the little fragments of, uh, of Maluku. Yeah, and even like Sulawesi, which is probably less famous than a lot of these other places you've talked about, is huge. It's a, it's a giant spider-looking island. And so let's dig in a little bit about what we can see and experience in these places. Um, and my frame of reference, as I've said, is Sumatra, where suddenly, you know, I was staying for $8 a night in some of the most beautiful places, you know, I've, I've stayed this year um, in, in the Harau Valley or on Lake Toba or in the Mintawai Islands. Um Actually, let's not start in Sumatra. Let's start in Bali because that's everybody's frame of reference. Uh, and I know that Bali is sort of a story in itself. You know, it gets at least like 7 million visitors. A lot of them are Chinese these days. It's sort of suffering from over-tourism, but it's just this beautiful and fantastic place. Uh, so let's start with Bali, Bali and Java. Yeah, why not? I mean, Bali was the first place I ever went to in Indonesia, like like most people. I sort of arrived in the wet season to go surfing. Um, Bali is, uh, if you've never been there, but you've been to you've been to Hawaii, physically, physically, it's quite like it's quite like a Hawaiian island. It's quite like Oahu. Or, it actually is quite like Oahu because it's got a very, very, uh, a very urban south and then it becomes progressively less urban as you go northwards. Very similar climate, uh, similar geography. So physically, physically, it's quite like that, really. But then it has this remarkable Hindu Bali culture on top of it. It is just like Hawaii, one of the most heavily touristed place on places on Earth. Uh, and the south uh, around Denpasar, which is the which is the the main the main city, the capital. The south is just sagging under under urbanization and tourism development i mean it's manic it's it's heavily heavily trafficked sort of like you took all of the developed bits of all of the thai islands and crammed them together in one fairly small space so it's 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 pretty pretty intense but then you know for all its ultra ultra commercialism and all of its all of its traffic problems and infrastructure problems you do still have this very distinct strong Balinese culture underneath it um, and then you don't have to go too far because it's a pretty small place to run into really beautiful areas and uh, and, and the tourism kind of is in, in weird pockets and then along along the lines of certain roads so very often you can just you can just turn left if you've got a motorbike or something turn left and and, and drive you know a mile or so and then you're in somewhere that 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 has virtually no tourism and people will be shouting hello mister and asking for a selfie just like in Sumatra where you could travel for a month and hardly see another foreigner yeah yeah I wonder if what what was the original appeal of Bali because one thing you know one reason I think that Lake Toba um was on the backpacker trail is that it's in the Batak region of Sumatra and the Bataks are Christian it almost feels like they be they stayed Christian instead of converting because they love pork and palm sap wine. I don't know if that's historically accurate, but it felt like their their, their <laughs> diet is so is so rooted in anti-Muslim things that there's no way they could convert, even though they're surrounded by Muslims. But the, <laughs> it just lends to a little bit more of a party scene. And so, is is the is the Hindu character of Bali part of the reason why it's so popular? Is it just because of its Hawaiian style beauty? Uh, it's uh, the I mean, it's beautiful. But then all of Indonesia is beautiful. You'll find very similar geography right next door in Lombok, which is which is Muslim. You'll find it all the way through Java, which is majority Muslim, um, and and through all the other islands. So the the idea that it's a particularly beautiful place, it is a particularly beautiful place. But by Indonesian standard, it's kind of 
kind of average, kind of typical. It's got this volcanic, volcanic tropical geography. Um, I think a big part of it is inevitably history again. Um, it had this slightly distinct character. It was the only bit of Indonesia that that remained with this kind of indigenous Hindu Buddhist animist culture, while the surrounding islands uh, turned to turned to turned to Islam, and then the bits that hadn't really been Hindu Buddhist before, places like the Batak regions or the Far East, later became Christian. So it was this this one place that that hadn't that hadn't sort of succumb to any of these these outside religious forces that came in. So that gave it this distinction. And when the Dutch captured it, which they did pretty late, early, early 20th century, really, pretty late in the day, they kind of entrenched that difference and they actually developed it as a tourist, as a tourist place way back in the 1930s. And it got a lot of writing done by kind of bohemian expats, lots of lots of artists and and sort of proto-hippie anthropologists turned up in the 1930s. So, so it, it got this place in the world's consciousness at a very, very early stage. Um, and that managed to somehow survive all the trauma of mid-20th century, the Second World War and the independence struggle and everything else. So I think it was just it had this place in the world's attention. So people people went there. And as Indonesia opened up to tourism, that was the first place they went. Um, it could just as easily have been Lombok next door, but Lombok didn't have that profile. So I, I think that's it's as simple as that. It's it's history. Uh, I mean, it's quite difficult for, for a place with no tourism to 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 start up from scratch. Bali already already had already had a name for itself. Well, it really did. I mean, Bali is a name that sort of transcends the idea of Indonesia. It's it's sort of this mythic word, you know, like maybe Timbuktu or or uh, Tasmania. I mean, it just it just has an exotic implication. And I'm curious, you know, it, it based upon my social media alone, it's still where everybody goes first in Indonesia and maybe Java. So I'll, I'll loop Java. Are Java and Bali still good places to start? Or are they are they so urbanized and touristed that maybe there's a wiser place to start in Indonesia? No, I, I think they I think they're great places to start, and I would say in a funny way, uh, Java in particular. I think they make a nice pair. I think I think Java and Bali as as a trip work work well together. I mean, you have to remember that Java is is uh, multiple times bigger than Bali. This is one of the one of the issues with traveling in Indonesia. And, and all the years that I've spent there, I still haven't got my head around it. You get you get kind of messed up with scale. So you you're in you're in Java and you just about get your your head around the scale of it. It's about the size of England, we'll say. Uh, and then you go to Sumatra and you look at the map and you kind of assume it's the same scale. But of course, it's not. It's many times bigger. And then you go to Bali and you sort of assume it's the same scale. And it's much smaller. So what you think is going to take you five hours uh, in Java, you go and do that trip in Bali. And, oh, it's only half an hour and you're there. And then you look at the same what looks like the same distance on the map in Sumatra. And you think I'll be there in five hours and it's actually three days. <laughs> so but but uh, to go back to the to the question, yeah, I, Java and Bali are great places to start and they make a, a really nice trip together. Um, but Java, because it's where fully half, in fact, more than half of the entire Indonesian population is, people assume it's all urban, it's it's overcrowded, but actually it's not. It's got a core of volcanoes and it's still overwhelmingly rural a large chunk of the people are crammed into surabaya and jakarta the north coast the north coast cities so it's still got large areas of empty space 
brilliant and very accessible volcanic landscapes and and it's got good infrastructure for traveling around and it's not that heavily touristed and there are certain key spots because most people traveling in in java do a very standard itinerary they tend to sort of start in jakarta and then travel through the island ticking off key spots and end up in Bali. So if you just slow the pace a bit and and go literally one place that's not on the routine itinerary, which usually goes kind of Jakarta to Bogor to Bandung to Jogjakarta Borobudur, uh, and then then probably to Mount Bromo, possibly to Ijen, and then to Bali. If you just add one more place into that that list, then you'll be way off the the, the standard beaten track. Um, and because it's got good infrastructure, it's it's fairly easy fairly easy to get around. And it's most kind of culturally culturally rich and dense in a way you know it's got like the great the great temples which more than rival the stuff you'd see in cambodia um it's got brilliant mountain scenery great food um a lot of colonial history in the big city so it's it's a great place i, I mean i love i love java i'm a real evangelist for java i, I think it's uh it's a place that that really repays repays travel and you can kind of take it take it almost as a southeast asian country in its own right i mean you could equate it to thailand or laos or cambodia yeah, I'm, I'm, perhaps I'm an oddball by not starting at one or both of those places. One weird wrinkle that I noticed, and I'm not sure how recently this was implemented, but you get a 30-day visa when you go to Indonesia, and it's hard to see very much of Indonesia in 30 days. Um, is there a way around that? Is there a way to negotiate the, the, the shortness? It feels like we used to be given more time in Indonesia, and that is no longer the case. Yeah, the the visas. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Indonesia's tourist industry is is perhaps lagging behind some of the other reasons, the, the other countries in the region. Um, it, it, it has long had a very backwards um, visa regime that's been very short sighted. The good news now is they've made it free again. When I first went, it, you got two months uh, free on arrival. And then they decided to drop it to 30 days and to charge, I think it was $25 or $30. Uh, so this was a great wrangle and it, and it went on for a long time. Yeah, so, I mean, you can't, you can't see a great deal in 30 days. You can, you can extend if you get a, uh, a visa on arrival. At the moment, most of Europe, North America, you, get, uh, you can get this free uh, visa-free entry stamp. If you choose not to get that, but actually pay in cash and get a visa on arrival, which you can do, it's a bit complicated, you have to ask, you can extend that by another 30 days, but it's a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare. The best thing to do is to apply for a visa in advance. Uh, you can apply for it from uh, from embassies in neighbouring countries, Singapore, uh, Kuala Lumpur, or you can get it back home. Uh, and you can get a 60-day visa, 60-day tourist visa, and you can then e extend that. You can extend that, in theory, in theory, up to four times, 30 days at a time. So in theory, you can get six months in the country. Uh, after the first extension, it actually becomes so much of a headache. The best bet is probably to hop on a cheap flight back to Singapore or Kuala Lumpur and come in again. But uh, but yeah, if you if you want to if you want to do a big Indonesian trip, apply for a visa in advance and get a 60 day one. Yeah, that's one thing. I mean, there's just there's so many possibilities in Indonesia, but but uh, that 30 day limit sort of compromises the the scope because as I learned in Sumatra, you know, I was I was my mind was blown every day and I saw just a fraction of of this island of Sumatra, which which granted is big. And then it's also hard to get around. I don't know how it is in 
Bali and Java probably have good roads. Sumatra's roads were pretty horrible. Um, what's 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 what's, <laughs> yeah. what's the average in Indonesia? Because I, I was actually this the the, the most frightened I, I had been was on the Trans Sumatran Highway when I was you know just taking a, an eighteen hour overnight share taxi. Um, what, is that normal or, or non normal? Um, I mean, it's it's improving. They're they're kind of in the process of this long. I mean, I think it'll be decades long process of upgrading the trans Sumatran Highway. So it's kind of getting better, but then big chunks of it uh, are always kind of under under work. Um, the the road, the quality of the roads in Java and Bali is is for the most part pretty good, but they carry a hell of a lot more traffic. So you're dealing with you're dealing with with you know your kind of your archetypal archetypal manic Southeast Asian traffic on those roads. But the roads themselves are are pretty good. Um, but once you're once you're in sort of the more outlying islands, yeah, they can be they can be pretty rough. Um, Sulawesi has some some pretty rough sections of mountain road. Once you get into the smaller islands further east, they can be they can be pretty bad. Um, but they have over the last five to ten years really really upgraded quite a lot of them. I was in uh, it was two years ago. I was in uh, West West Kalimantan in Borneo for the first time. I'd, I'd never been there. Uh, and roads that, according to the guidebooks, had been horrific just a couple of years before, were were pristine, you know, perfect, perfect roads, uh, going into the into the kind of central part of Kalimantan there. So they they're gradually improving the main trunk roads, sure. But uh, as soon as you as soon as you get onto a onto a country road, there's some pretty bad ones. Even in Java, you get onto some of the mountain roads, and and they're kind of more pothole and road, to be honest. Well, I think just to, to reassure my listeners, actually, bad roads means you get the place to yourself. You know, the less convenient it is, I found, at least in Sumatra, that the more you really have the entire landscape to yourself. Uh, and my listeners might also be a little bit intimidated by all these place names that we're throwing out. Um, so so if uh, if you're confused, just take out a map or something, because these are all just amazing places. Like each of these island names we're mentioning can be a month holiday and only uh, even if you spend a month there, you can't see everything. So one last thing about Bali and Java, you know, in general, Indonesia is is known for volcanoes and hiking. It's it's known for for sea life and and uh, snorkeling and surfing, um, and then cultural areas. Because even in one reason why I didn't learn the the Indonesian language very well, the Bahasa Indonesian language very well, is that I was I would pick up a little bit of Batak and a little bit of Maninkabau. Um, and so even on Sumatra, there are, there are all these separate specific language groups. Does this all stuff all apply to Java and Bali, or are they more? Um, are there other things to see there, or, or fewer things to see there? Oh, there's 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 all of that stuff. Um, and, and what you've got to remember as well about about Java, this is this is where the capital city and the major urban centres for a really kind of rising, economically vibrant, culturally vibrant Asian nation. So, you know, you've got you've got great, great kind of contemporary music uh, in in Java and in Bali as well. But Java is where the big cities are. So you've got great kind of great live music scenes. You've got great kind of uh, modern art scenes going on uh, and, and, and general sort of the kind of stuff that you would you would maybe have in mind traveling to London or New York. You, you have all of that there as well. You know, so so it's important not to think about Huh. The place as just this kind of exotic place where you go to see, you know, landscapes and traditional things. Um, yeah, Jakarta. Jakarta's got all of that kind of stuff. Uh, J- 
Georgia Carter's got really, really interesting uh, contemporary art scene, contemporary music scene. Bandung has got got a major music scene. I mean, Indonesia has has massive world class in terms of music, massive world class jazz and punk scenes. I mean, Indonesia has the biggest punk scene in the world. Uh, so if you're into if you're into punk rock. Yeah, forget about forget about like London, forget about forget about Southern California or whatever. Indonesia is where you'll you'll find some of the most interesting and unusual and vibrant vibrant punk bands. And and if you're into jazz, you'll find you'll find loads of jazz festivals and that kind of thing. So I, I always think it's worth remembering that, that that Indonesia has has that kind of contemporary, modern, urban culture as much as, as much as all the other stuff. And you get the greatest concentration of that in in Java, really. I think even in the provinces, people are aware of this. Indonesian people are are, are tuned into the pop culture of Indonesia in general. And and as an aside, I saw Henry Rollins, the the former singer of Black Flag. I, he has a travel oriented slideshow that he gives around the country. It's it's really a lot of fun. And he saw a Black Flag T shirt for sale in somewhere in Java. Uh, right next to an Avenged Sevenfold T-shirt. I don't really know anything about Avenged Sevenfold, but I heard it on the radio all the time when I was in Indonesia. So wherever Avenged Sevenfold is from, they can thank their lucky stars that Indonesians love them so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. One other aside, uh, while we're on the topic of Bali, I heard, and I don't even know where this was, but very recently somebody said that the Indonesian central government wanted to create 20 new Balis. Have you heard of this? Like they want to develop yes. other islands. Yeah, this is this is a kind of uh, the latest incarnation of a of a long standing thing. This this idea that the that the tourism dollar needs to be spread. That Bali is kind of sagging under the weight of its visitor numbers. And I mean, you have to remember as well that that Indonesia has a vast vast domestic tourism market. Um, I mean, Bali gets it's hard to quantify exactly, but Bali gets probably about twice as many domestic tourists as international visitors. Oh. Um, yeah, I, on on a, on a huge scale. Um, I mean, it's close to the big urban centers of Java, which is the main reason. But but Indonesians Indonesians want to go on holiday as well, and and for them, Bali's Bali's the most famous place, just as much as it is for everyone else. So the government historically has always tried these these various schemes to develop develop new areas, and this idea of of yeah of 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 investing and trying kind of artificially to develop new new areas is is kind of it's it's a it's an incarnation of of uh, of of old schemes now it it may work in certain places but the place kind of has to have has to have something going on there already i mean one place that's really really boomed from being a real kind of remote kind of backpacker center is Labuan Bajo in Flores, which is a couple of islands east of Bali, which is the gateway to the Komodo National Park, where the Komodo dragons are. And that used to be a real place that was an overland trip, you know, several days journey east of Bali. And it was a kind of real, real little backpacker town. And that that's a place that with deliberate investment has now turned into a real major place with big kind of high end hotels and, and a lot going on there. Uh, Lombok, they've tried for years to kind of make it the next Bali and new airport and that kind of thing, but it's never quite, never quite taken off. So I imagine that this latest scheme will probably, probably fizzle out at some point and they'll come up with another one in a few years, a few years time. I think when places really emerge as, as real new hubs, it kind of has to happen semi, semi-organically with, with a bit of, bit of government help along the way, uh, which is what's happened in, in, in Labon Bajo and Komodo, definitely. It would be an interesting social experience just for the the Indonesian government to uh, social experiment for the Indonesian government to to hire a 
shock troops of like 500 international Instagrammers to just a, a random island and see if they can Instagram this island into world fame because it seems like social media is a big inspiration for people now and just, there's just a lot of buzz on Instagram for example about Bali Bali which has been famous forever is as popular as ever thanks to platforms like Instagram well listen there's a, there's a great example of of how that has happened within Bali there's an island called Nusa Penida which is uh, politically part of Bali it just sits off the southeast coast and it was weirdly this one little pocket of of Bali that had had remained totally off the radar tourists just didn't go there there was no infrastructure there you could you could go there and stand on the beach and look back and see the resorts of southern bali just you know a short short distance away across the the strait there but there was there was just no tourism there it was like leaping into one of the small remote islands in the far east and i first went there uh, i've been going to bali for years but had never like like everyone else had never been there i first went there in i think 2015 and it was just, you could just see the signs, a couple of guest houses had opened. And within 12 months, it was the new hot place in Bali. And that was all down to Instagram because uh, it's got these incredible cliffs and these white sand beaches at the bottom of these high limestone cliffs. And it was sort of undiscovered and great snorkeling and diving. But I think it's really worth saying that that what drove that was actually not instant international Instagrammers, but Indonesian Instagrammers. Huh. Indonesia has a huge travel scene that that is very kind of tech savvy that began to emerge about 10 years ago. Um, you know, Indonesians have always traveled, middle-class Indonesians have always traveled and the middle class is growing, um, but they tended to go on pretty standard holidays. They tended to go basically to a Balinese resort or to a, or to a hill town in Java. Um, but about 10, 10 years ago, Sort of young middle class Indonesians really embraced kind of backpacking on a big, big scale. And Indonesia got this huge travel blogging scene, massive travel blogging scene. Most of it, most of it was in Indonesian, Bahasa Indonesia, but but some of them, some of them were blogging in English. Um, there's a great, great blog run by two women from Jakarta called Indohoy, uh, and they do some really good stuff in English. And there's there's various other ones as well. So this travel blogging scene developed, and then as the kind of world moved from blogging to kind of micro platforms, they embraced Instagram on a huge scale. So so Indonesian travelers, in the Indonesian Instagram travelers have been opening places up. And Nusa Penida is, is a place that was pretty much entirely, entirely created by Instagram with Indonesian Instagrammers in the first wave of opening up. It's interesting to think about because I, I'm sort of I'm sort of torn. I'm, I'm, a, I'm suddenly a fan of Indonesia and I want people to know about it. But at the same time, there, you can sort of flatten places if they become too popular in that Instagram way. And I, I recall specific times in Sumatra when I would go online and somebody was posting something beautiful from Bali and I was thinking to myself, I've seen something that beautiful in the last 12 hours and then wondering you know, whether or not I wanted uh, the reputation of Sumatra to get out. And I'm, I mean, you, you've seen the evolution of travel in uh, Indonesia for not quite 20 years, but I'm, I'm wondering if there has been a flattening of the scene or, or if, or if the, the tourist visits are more concentrated than they were before. Because I expected to see a lot more Western backpackers in Sumatra and I saw almost none because it feels like people are flying because it's so cheap. They're flying from Singapore or Bangkok to Bali and not seen as much. So are, are people, especially international people, concentrated uh, or is it still spread out in ways that I just didn't notice? No, I, I think I think that's a that's a good observation, and I think there's definitely an element of truth in that. Um, it, it's not necessarily that they are so much 
concentrated in just a handful of places than that that it's sort of fragmented so you have these places where loads of people go um and bali is obviously obviously a key one and then and then parts of java and then somewhere like Labon Bajo, flores um the, the the komodo dragons and then just slightly random places like there's major diving sites in, in the east of of papua or even in the banda islands you get these pockets of concentration whereas when i started traveling in indonesia it was the same everywhere people did big overland and in the case of indonesia overseas trips so you 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 still had the 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 relics of the old the old trail which was you'd got the ferry from singapore worked your way down through java got to bali and then went on from there so people were kind of spread out and and that took in parts of sumatra took in lake toba and there was a bit of an overland route through there so that kind of that kind of big overland and overseas trip has has gone you know people fly into into jakarta or into bali and then they may well go to somewhere in Sumatra, somewhere in Maluku, somewhere in Sulawesi, but they they do it by flying. You know, they get a cheap flight to that place and then they come back. So people do these very fragmented trips, which I think is a bit of a shame in a way, because you 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 lose that that sense of a journey that 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 you got with the the big overland trip. I mean, you and I both started traveling roughly the same time and 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 that was that was what you did. You you immersed yourself in a place and you were six months on the road, quite literally, or on the boat in, in Indonesia. So it's become a lot more fragmented and people travel in that way. There's a few places where where a bit of the old overland and sea route still exists. Um, one is in the islands running running east from Bali, Nusa Tenggara, so Lombok, Sumbawa, then Komodo and Flores. Uh, and it's a place that lends itself well to island hopping. They're all fairly small islands and you can hop your way across them. So there's a bit of a bit of a route route through there still, which I would recommend. And the other place that seems to have uh, a, a bit of a of a of an overlanding trail, very, very, very low key uh, compared to the mainland Southeast Asia one. But but there is Sulawesi because it's such an odd shape. There's such an obvious route through it. So people can fly into Makassar, which is in the south and the southwest travel up to Tanataraja, which is an amazing kind of upland area with a really distinctive culture and then you go on through there to the Poso area Tentena then to the Togian Islands and then you hop across to the next the next peninsula the northern one and you end up in Manado and I was there a couple of years ago and there was definitely a bit of a an old school overland trail there um, I mean there'd only be a few dozen people on it at any one time in any any particular place but it had a bit of a I, I found it quite nostalgic it was a bit like the, the the kind of old days of of overland backpacking so that does still exist in places but I think you're right it's 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 very concentrated and very fragmentary, but I think that applies everywhere now. Yeah, yeah. As as I'm as I'm starting to discover, I guess it's, it's just a different starting point for how people get their information. Um, you talk about Sulawesi, certainly a place that I want to go to, and and certainly a place that was among the last major regions of Indonesia I learned about. Um, and you've talked about how sophisticated the urban areas of Indonesia are, and that's true. I think I sort of avoided them in Sumatra. And then also what I really fell in love with in Sumatra was my trip to Sibirut, to the Mentawai Islands, um, where I basically spent almost a week hiking around in these really sloppy rainforests, meeting these people who a generation ago were Stone Age tribes people. So um, I know that more famous tribal hiking areas in 
Indonesia are like Papua or Kalimantan, which is on Borneo, and maybe even Sulawesi. So I think of I think of Sulawesi and Borneo and Papua as sort of the far flung parts of Indonesia. Am I right or am I wrong? Are there more far flung places than that? They they're, they're far flung in terms of their relationship to the center. I mean, the center of Indonesia is kind of the geographical center. So it is Java and Bali. Those are the most the most densely populated and heavily urbanized and, and wealthiest parts. And then everywhere else as you kind of fling fling your way out gets yeah further and further flung. Um, I mean, you, you but you find obviously weird kind of pockets of of, of uh, development and modernity a long way from those centres. I mean, Medan, which I guess you came through in Sumatra, is a very very big city. Yeah. Um, and then you get to the very far far top of Sulawesi, for example, and you get to Manado, which is a, 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 a the outer limits of Indonesia geographically, but it's it's a it's a pretty cosmopolitan and 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 quite vibrant in a nice way city with a great great setting. So you do find these these kind of unexpected pockets, but really it would be sort of Nusa Tenggara, which is the small island chain running out um, east of Bali as far as as Timor, and then Maluku, uh, which is the great scattering of islands in the in the space between Sulawesi and 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 New Guinea. Uh, those would be the places where you're really you're really into into the outer the outer reaches, small islands, so very very un unurbanized, mainly mainly rural and pretty pretty small towns. So those those kind of places are where where Indonesia feels feels most like an archipelago, most like a place made up of islands, and where you do feel a very very long way from from kind of urban sophistication of places like like Jakarta or Bali or Medan. Is is there a, an approach that you would like if somebody kind of likes the idea of some uh, some jungle hiking with maybe meeting some indigenous folks who are living a, a fairly traditional life? Where might you steer them? In no, I've you you've been there. I've never actually been there, but I think Mentawai is, is is a place where that's that's it's got a great reputation for that being solidly solidly accessible i think people sometimes go to borneo kalimantan with that in mind but but actually um you know most people there are not living what we would perhaps think of as traditional lifestyles uh and most of them most of them weren't kind of jungle tribes they lived in settled communities anyway so you you, you won't really encounter that there if that's what you're expecting um and then papua obviously has uh, people living very traditional lifestyles, but tends to not be particularly accessible. Um, the Balian Valley in, in the centre is accessible, but it's uh, I mean it's quite quite well structured for tourism. So I, I think I think the Mentawais is is a is a place where that that has a reputation for 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 being being a place where you can really go to that. So I think you probably tick the tick the top box there yourself. But I've not been there myself, so uh, so I'd have to I'd have to defer to you on that. Um, but there's great there's great hiking and great access to kind of traditional village culture in in lots of places. Sumba, which is in Nusa Tenggara in the southeast, is great for that. And uh, the real, real kind of top, top place for that is Tanataraja in Sulawesi. Spectacular village architecture, beautiful scenery and some really good, really good trails between between villages. Um, and it's that's a that's a great place that really sums up the way Indonesia in the 21st century is because these are villages with remarkable traditional architecture, these soaring high roofs 
and a, and a really strong culture of traditional funerals and traditional customs. But it's also it's also a place that's pretty prosperous by Indonesian standards and pretty keyed into the to the modern world as well. So you get that 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 really nice balance that Indonesia often does well of being being very distinctly culturally uh, proud of its identity, uh, a local identity, but also uh, at ease in the in the modern world too. Again, it feels like I'm getting a sense of just this really rich menu of possibilities that Indonesia can be, while at the same time being so intimidatingly dense and diverse that I can sort of understand why people stay on mainland Southeast Asia, because it's almost like, well, where do you start, you know, other than Bali and Java, where do you even start? And what are you going to miss by going to these places? So for for first timers uh, to uh, to Indonesia, What's a good strategy for starting or a good strategy for returning if maybe they've been to the Bali Javas? And you can you can answer as long as you want, because I'm actually kind of personally interested in this. Um, yeah, I think what you did, Rolf, was was a really good approach. And it's what I always, always recommend to people uh, is remember the scale. You know, you've been to Southeast Asia before. Maybe you've been to Cambodia, you've been to Laos, even even Thailand. You feel like you've kind of covered the place in a trip. You cannot do that with Indonesia. Uh, I mean, this is a place on a, on a scale on a scale similar to to the whole of the whole of not not just the US, the whole of North America. Um, so imagine if you took sort of Mexico and Canada and the US, you wouldn't you wouldn't see that in a single trip. But imagine if you took that and then broke that up into something like seventeen thousand islands, then there's no way in the world you could even begin to deal with it. So so the the best thing to do. With Indonesia is to just choose one place. Um, you know, Bali and Java make a really good block for for one trip. Northern Sumatra makes a decent block for one trip. Uh, Sulawesi makes a decent block for one trip, and any of them could take up a month quite easily. They could take up two months if you if you wanted to. So that's my 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 biggest recommendation is don't look at Indonesia. Don't look at the guidebook and look at the highlights and think, okay, I want to see Lake Toba. I want to see Tanataraja. I kind of want to go to Borneo. I want to see the Komodo dragons. And, and I also want to spend some beach time in Bali. It's not going to work. Um, you're going to spend an awful lot of time sitting in kind of grim airport terminals flying between cities that are maybe not that attractive. So the best bet is, is choose choose one island or one part of an island if it's a huge one like Sumatra or one block of islands that are together and make make that your make that your trip um at the very most stitch two places together so you know you could you could spend a, a week in bali maybe and then fly on to sulawesi and do an overland trip through sulawesi something like that but but just don't try and don't try and have a broad geographical span in a single trip because it just doesn't work and it's not it's not a satisfying way to travel uh anywhere really but it, but that's so much more the case in indonesia so treat it treat it as a as a continent not a country yeah, no, and this is sort of why I encourage listeners to, to to get a map and look because I think the default based on instinct will be oh well just I'll just start in Bali which is fine right it's it's fine to start in Bali but there's just so many other places and Sulawesi in itself is a is sort of a lesser known but place that you could spend months you know oh yeah so, I mean if you did the standard overland the overland trip that I described earlier starting at Makassar the big city the bigger city in the southwest and ending at Manado the bigger city in the northeast that to do that comfortably and reasonably uh three weeks would be the minimum and you could very easily make a month of it 
Um, and and that's that's how you should that's and you'll be traveling long journeys as well. You know, you'll be spending a lot of time sitting on buses or, or shared taxis on mountain roads, even even doing that. One one final aside question. Um, I, I forgot to ask about safety. I forget how often people are worried about safety. Um, and I'm going to Mexico pretty soon and people are asking me about safety in Mexico and I'd sort of forgotten about it had a dangerous reputation. Is there, are there any danger or other worries about going to a place like Indonesia? I would say 100% no. And I think that that applies to, to most of, most of Asia. Uh, I think it's, it's the safest the safest continent by by a long shot um it's i've i've kind of spent so much so much of my traveling life in in asia uh southeast asia in particular that it sort of made me soft really i mean you said you're going to mexico and i instantly think oh god isn't mexico dangerous because i'm so i'm so sort of accustomed to traveling in in indonesia and southeast asia where you just really don't have to worry about personal safety i mean there's you know in in, in towns crowded areas there's pickpocketing and bag snatching as much as there'd be anywhere but in general general security concerns absolutely not i mean there's there is there's no kind of no general hostility to to foreigners at, at, in any way, shape, or form. And uh, in terms of general security, it's it's just just not an issue. I mean, people don't have guns in Indonesia. That's a start. So the violent crime is 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 pretty much unknown. I mean, people may may think back to the to the sort of terrorist terrorist incidents of sort of 15, 15 towards twenty years ago. The Bali bomb was was well known. Um, and there was a little, a little sort of flurry of of, of terrorist terrorist incidents there. The famous one was the Bali bomb, which was targeting tourists, but quite a number of others was targeting targeting government institutions in Jakarta. But that was really, really quite successfully dealt with socially and in terms of security. The the, the government, the security forces, really really did get a, a hold on it. And I think I think it's not a ridiculous thing to say that that kind of safety concern you'd probably have more to worry about in Europe than you would in Indonesia. So no, I would just say well, off the board, Indonesia is a, is a very safe country. One of the safest countries for traveling in as are most of the others in that region. Yeah. It, it was a non-issue for me in, in Sumatra over the winter. Um, on, on one final note, just what's the argument for people who might, you know, be thinking about it. What's the argument for going to Indonesia? Oh, cause it's just the best country. And uh, and and once you start, then you don't ever need to go to any other countries because you've got this continent sized place to play with. I mean, there's huge sections of it that I've never been to. And that's in that's in well, heading heading up towards 20 years of traveling and including a long spell of actually living there. Vast, vast areas that I've never been to. Um, so, yeah, you could you could you could. If you're a manic traveler, fanatical traveler, you could forget about every other country in the world and just stick with Indonesia and it would it would fill a lifetime of traveling. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to all of Tim Hannigan's books about Indonesia, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.